Welcome to Crime Corner, where we examine all things crime, whether it be on the page, on the screen, on the street, or in the courtroom. I'm Matt Coyle, author of the Rick Kale Crime Series, and I'll be your host for as long as it takes. All right, a quick plug for myself uh, before we get to the show. The eighth Rick Cahill crime novel is coming out November 30th and will be available at all your favorite bookstores online and in person. Um, I have to get that out. Plus, uh, next Tuesday at 1 o'clock West Coast time, 4 o'clock East Coast time, and all the times in between, I'll be interviewed by the USA Today bestselling author Daniel Gerard on Facebook.com slash Authors on the Air and YouTube.com slash same thing, Authors on the Air. So enough about me. My guest tonight, Dennis Palumbo, is a licensed psychotherapist specializing in creative issues, which I find fascinating. Formerly a Hollywood screenwriter, Dennis's credits include the feature film My Favorite Year, a great movie, for which he was nominated for a WGA Award for Best Screenplay. Pretty impressive. He was also a staff writer for the ABC TV series Welcome Back, Cotter. So I think maybe he's got a picture of Dorian Gray some, in some office because um, that was a while ago. and He seems like a young man. And he's also written numerous uh, series episodes and pilots. His work helping writers has been profiled in the New York Times, Premier Magazine, Fade In, Angelino, goes on, GQ, the Los Angeles Times, and other publications, as well as on NPR and CNN. He's also appeared numerous times on Between the Lines, uh, the PBS author interview show. Dennis's mystery fiction has appeared in Ellery Queen Mystery Magazine, The Strand, Mystery Weekly, and elsewhere, and is collected in from Crime to Crime by Tallfellow Tall Fellow Press. His acclaimed debut crime novel, Mirror Image, was the first in a series featuring psychologist and trauma expert Daniel Rinaldi. It was followed by Fever Dream, Night Terrors, Phantom Limb, I love these titles, and the award-winning Head Wounds, and another great title, Panic Attack, is the sixth in the series. Welcome, Dennis Palumbo. Oh, thank you, Matt. Thanks for having me. Yes, my pleasure. So, uh, Panic Attack, we were just talking before uh, we went on, has been out about a month and a half. So, tell us a little bit about, first of all, if you could, Daniel Rinaldi, an interesting guy, and the book, Panic Attack. Well, my lead character, Daniel Rinaldi, uh, is a psychologist, but he's also a trauma expert, and he consults with the Pitts Police. His specialty is treating victims of violent crime, people who may have survived the carjacking or the home invasion or the armed robbery, but are traumatized by that experience. And, and mm-hmm. most crime novels don't pay much attention to the victim. They're too busy dealing with the other things. And right. so what Daniel does is he works with traumatized victims, people who have symptoms we tend to associate with post-traumatic stress disorder. Now, he himself has been traumatized by a crime. Years before, his wife and he were coming out of a restaurant. They got mugged. It went sideways. Shots rang out. She was killed. He was wounded, but he survived. And as a result, he's been left with survivor guilt. And at one point, he said, the only reason I'm here is because of unearned luck. And I've been trying to ever since. And so that's his character. He also feels because of what happened to him and his survival, he has a mission to help people who have been traumatized by violence. And even though he's a civilian, he is under contract with the police. And so that ends up getting him involved in all sorts of uh, high-end investigations, much often to the chagrin 
uh, of the Pittsburgh police to a very, let's say, ambivalent view of his role there. And right. that's who the character is. He's, uh, the stories all take place in my hometown of Pittsburgh. And like me, he's an Italian-American who came from a blue-collar family. My dad was a grocer. His dad was a beat cop. And like me, he was the first among the grandchildren to go to college, the first one to get a degree. You know, so he has one foot in the old Pittsburgh of steel mills and smoky skies and one foot in the new gentrified Pittsburgh that is much more white-collar than it used to be. The way I like to tell it is I worked my way through the University of Pittsburgh shoveling coal into blast furnaces at J&L Steel Mill on 2nd Avenue. Now, 40 years later, those steel mills are all gone, and that whole area has been turned into, like, boutique shops and restaurants. And wow. so when you see brand-new buildings coming up in Pittsburgh, you know, these towering splinters of glass and silver, the steel that's used to make them is all imported from Japan. Yeah, that's amazing. Sad. Isn't it? Yeah. The city's really changed. You know, I've never been there, but I heard it's a beautiful city. Um, it, kinda, uh, uh, it, it, it kind of amazes people now because it kind of looks like Sydney. I mean, it's really sparkling and pretty. The skies are all, you know, clear. And, um, you know, it used to be kind of an industrial shot in a beer town. And now it's primarily white collar, state-of-the-art technology, and state-of-the-art medicine. I mean, yeah. when the Dalai Lama needed his detached retina worked on, he went to Pittsburgh to have it done. So yeah. it, it, it's really changed. However, you know, like with all change, there have been some growing pains. There have been families that had lived in the same neighborhood for a hundred years, and those neighborhoods are now so gentrified, those families can't afford to live there anymore. Mm-hmm. This is a phenomenon yeah. in many in, uh, right. cities in America. Right. It's really, really uh, prevalent in Pittsburgh. So there's a kind of uneasy thing where you'll, you'll go downtown, you'll see this you know, amazing plaza at the point and all these amazing buildings, but it up against cobblestone streets that still have the streetcar tracks inside. Yeah. You know, so it's very, it can be very, very uh, mixed experience to walk through the Pittsburgh area downtown. Well, you mentioned Uneasy, and Panic Attack is an uneasy book in many ways. So tell us a little bit about um, a brief synopsis about Panic Attack. Sure. Uh, Panic Attack is, is the story of what happens when there is a sniper who, shooting from rooftops in downtown Pittsburgh, is shooting targets seemingly at random. And one of the uh, uh, supposed targets survives it, and is having such a panic attack from the experience that Daniel is brought in to help work with him. And sooner or later, Daniel, like in every one of these novels, <laughs> ends up getting involved in the investigation. Uh, the city itself starts to panic. You know, uh, uh, it, it, people can be panicked. Like after 9-11, New York was in a traumatized yeah. state. Uh, uh, and when the D.C. sniper was working in Virginia, D.C., was in a kind of traumatized state. Ask anyone who's been there. And so I also wanted to use the pandemic as the kind of guiding principle. You know, 
interestingly enough, since the lockdown and the pandemic, there's been a great rise in panic attacks among people. The, mm. the sense of, of fear and terror about what might happen. And so I thought it would make a good metaphor. Um, the thing I'm, I'm, I'm most proud of in the book, though, is that around the two-thirds of the way through the book, the actual sniper is captured. And then we learned that everything we thought about what was going on was wrong. And the real mystery begins, and it's a turn that I'm really proud of. It takes yeah, most definitely. people by. To me, uh, definitely a good twist. Um, this is – I'm looking at the back of the book, and it has halfway down on the uh, – on giving a synopsis, it mentions who the first victim is. Can I say who the first vic- victim is? Sure. Okay. <laughs> this is really good. It's a um, small college football mascot, and which is a great uh, hook. And it made me wonder how that came about. Were you watching a college football game one time and said, "What would happen if they took out that mascot?" Or what I'd like well, to take it, out the mascot. Long history, because when I was at Pitt, the football team uh, at Pitt is called the Pitt Panthers. Panthers. Yep. And the mascot at the University of Pittsburgh is, of course, a guy, you know, a student running around in a Panther outfit. But they have this weird tradition at Pitt that the person behind the mask is anonymous. And that after he's done with his job and graduates, he has to promise never to reveal that he had been the Pitt Panther. And so one of the things I, I've always been fascinated by the fact that nobody knows who the Pitt Panther mascot is, except for the college provost and the uh, coach of the football team. So I thought to myself, well, what would happen if my hero, Daniel Rinaldi, is invited to speak at this small college, and then the next day the dean invites him to the football game they're having, and he said, and the dean says to him, see our mascot down there? This is called Teasdale College. And they're the Teasdale Tigers is the football team. So there's a kid in a foot, you know, in a tiger outfit, you know, jumping all around, leading the crowd in a big tiger roar and stuff. And the dean says, um, nobody knows who he is except me and the coach. And he tells Daniel who the guy is. And then a sniper bullet rings out and the mascot is shot. The whole crowd is stunned. And as everyone runs down, and Daniel and the cops and everyone, and they pull the mask off, the mascot, the dean says, that's not who the guy was supposed to be in there. So the mystery is, who's the guy? Right. What's he doing in the mascot outfit if he wasn't supposed to be the mascot? And who killed him and why? And that's how the story begins. So from the prologue to that, you're actually saying that you could possibly have been the um, Pittsburgh uh, Panther mascot back in the day. Well, I, you know, it's funny. I could tell you, but then I'd have to kill you. It, right. Uh, yeah, this would have to just be between you and me. Whoever um, was so in I those took four a, years. An oath, uh, a blood <laughs> oath of silence. <laughs> Um, but it, I always used to wonder when I went to pit games and the, I watched the mascot jumping around down there, were there any uh, alumni in the in, – because Pitt has a lot of alumni that would come back for the games. And I would look around the stadium and go, I wonder if any of these alumni had himself been the Pitt Panther years and years before, and only right. he knows it. 
Because it's, it's, it's got to be. Got to be a few. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure it's there a, were. It's a good hook. Um, and Pitt actually just, you know, off top topic, Pitt used to be a football power, but not really anymore. So. <clears throat> well, not too bad. Not too bad this year. Good. Um, so this job that, that or service he provides, so I think he gets paid for it, that uh, Rinaldi has with the Pittsburgh Police Department. Is that something that's done in real life for, for, for police forces that you're aware of? Well, most of the departments use is a police psychologist who is under contract and usually on plant. Where, and usually the police, if there is a victim of a crime or whatever, there's Victim Services, which is uh, an organization that, as a group, attends to the emotional needs of traumatized victims. So I kind of just made up a guy in private practice doing this for the police. And I, I think that that allows him a certain amount of autonomy. He's still in private practice as a regular psychologist. And, but, you know, for, you know, for example, during, in, in the second book, Fever Dream, there's an armed bank robbery and all the tellers are killed except for one young woman who's so traumatized she can't give the police any information about the robbers. So Daniel is brought in to do a kind of psychological triage right there on the curb with her. That's the kind of thing that he does. And it's the excuse I use to have uh, someone who's essentially a civilian but under contract get involved in police crimes. Right. <clears throat> so definitely an interesting twist. Um, so I, I think I think I, from your bio I got this, um, or I put it together, that you came to psychology later in life. Was it after you'd written for TV? Oh, yeah. No, I had been a film and TV writer for about 17 or 18 years. And uh, a number of things happened in my personal life where I ended up in therapy and sort of fell in love with the process. So I started taking classes, not with the idea that I was going to change careers, but I was so interested in clinical work that I started volunteering at a psych hospital and at a low-fee family clinic. And I told myself, well, look, as a writer, it can't hurt me to do this. It would only give me more insight into people. But the more classes I took, the more I began to realize I'm on my way to a degree. Do I want to keep mm. doing this? Mm-hmm. And uh, ultimately, after about six and a half years, uh, when I got my degree and I realized I had done almost 3,000 hours as an intern, which enables you to sit for the test. And so mm-hmm. I did and realized that I think I want to change my life. I think I want to be a therapist. So uh, I did. I retired from show business. I've been in private practice about uh, 30 years. Um I was a young whippersnapper on Welcome Back, Cotter, believe me. I was, I was 25. Say. Yeah, when I was on staff there, uh, I was 25. But I've been in private practice for 30 years, and my practice is primarily for creative people. Um, I have a couple novelists and poets, but primarily I have film and TV writers and directors. And uh, I've been very, very gratified um, that I've been able to – sustain uh, a practice here in Hollywood doing that. Yeah, it seems to me, once again, like uh, Daniel Rinaldi's um, specialty, it seems kind of 
like something you may have sort of the, the practice itself um, invented. No. Well, I yeah, mean, that's right. Very I mean, slice I'm of it. Uniquely by to do what I do. Um, and, you know, there aren't any other psychologists I know of in the area that have the experience in show business that I do. You know, so if a patient says I'm anxious about pitching to the network, well, I pitched to a network a thousand times. So I have, an, I, I think, a unique perspective or understanding of what my patients are going through. Um, so, but, uh, I, you know, I'm retired. I don't write film or TV anymore, but I still like writing. And so mm-hmm. about 12 years ago, I wrote the first Daniel Rinaldi novel. I'd always wanted to create a series of characters. Um, ever since I was 10 years old, uh, I had the mumps, and my dad brought me The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. And I thought I died and went to heaven. I, I didn't know how long has this been going on. You know, I just instantly fell in love with the mystery world. And so um, I, I, I've been liking, enjoying writing it ever since. Uh, in fact, the, it's so weird. The same week, my writing partner and I got hired on Welcome Back, Cotter was the same week I sold my first mystery short story to Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine. So wow. Always been there as something that was going to be a part of my life. My brother gave me the Adventures of Sherlock Holmes at about the same age when I was around ten. And um, really, and, and, um, yeah, great. I, I still have it. Um, certainly have. I have the plastic one because it was illustrated, you know, hardback yeah, illustrated. Yeah. I remember that's right. Cracking it open and that smell of the binding. I yeah. can still smell it now. That is and yeah. That's it. I think we have the same book, yeah. the, the illustrated one, yeah. Um, I think we have. I lost you there. Still there? No, I'm right here. Oh, sorry, I lost you for a second. Um, so just a quick uh, detour back to the uh, your therapy. Um, so what kind of issues do – I mean, writers were all a little kind of wacky. But like you said, if someone has an, um, is, is going to be pitching to a, a Hollywood producer or such – what kind of – obviously, we're not going to get any kind of real specifics, but I imagine there's a lot of high-level uh, people that see you. And what kind of um, uh, anxiety would they be dealing with? Well, it's funny. My, I mean, I'm very lucky. I have a lot of Oscar winners, Emmy winners, you know, fairly high-level patients. And many of the shows that you and your listeners watch now are run by people in my practice. But they still have issues along the lines of writer's block, uh, procrastination, anxiety, fear of failure. Um, and, you know, these kinds of issues are inextricably bound up in a person's personal life. So even if someone comes in and says, you know, I have writer's block, I'm halfway through my spec screenplay and I can't finish it. Well, within three or four sessions, we're dealing with his family uh, the dynamics of his childhood, uh, what the meaning he brings to having a block. You know, in my experience, for example, if you have writer's block, it's mostly because writing's hard, for <laughs> one. And also, it's not the block so much that causes the trouble, it's the meaning you give to it. If you're blocked and you go, well, I guess this means the story doesn't work, or maybe it means I'm not a good writer, or maybe my parents were right and I should have gone to law school. You know, it's the meaning, the anxiety that, that emerges as a result of what you're struggling with can be much more devastating than the actual writing 
problem itself. So the next time I'm blocked, I should not think maybe my parents were right and I should have gone to law school. No. You should tell yourself, hey, I'm probably trying to write something that's a little bit of a stretch for me, uh, or maybe it's more personal than I've written before. And, you know, one of the things that's interesting is I think a person who's blocked, it's almost like it's a developmental step. You know, like when you watch a toddler learning to walk, they get up, they fall down, they get up, they fall down, and ultimately they master the developmental step of walking. Mm. And I think that most writer's blocks because I've never had a writer patient who, having navigated a block, didn't think they were a better writer on the other side. I, I think it's like a developmental step in, in you know, the arc of your growth as, as a writer. I can't say 100% that I thought always thought I was a better writer coming out the other side, but I always thought that it made the book better because I was in that corner but there was something I needed to get out of it and forcing my creativity to get me out. I did think, I think it made the book better. Maybe it made me a better writer too, but I think it always makes a book better when you can, you can find your way out. Well, yeah, it makes the book better, but it also does something else psychologically, which is it's building your history of having solved problems. Mm. So that the next time you're blocked or you, or you come into a narrative problem, you can go, wow, I felt this way on the last five books about some <laughs> part of the narrative. And I figured it out. I have a history now that I can count on. I don't know what the answer is yet, but I bet I'll figure it out. And hmm. that's kind of the growth for a writer. Uh, the that's veteran funny. writer is not, doesn't get blocked. It's that they don't hmm. panic about it. Right. That's, uh, I actually feel like I've made some progress, Dennis, because that's how I feel with every book is that I, like, I don't even know what I'm doing, but I've done it before, so I, I, I push my way through. So maybe there's, there's hope for me. Yes, there is hope for you. I mean, that's what progress is. What is else? How else will you define progress? If you only define progress, that everything you write is bulletproof and wonderful, you're not going to grow. You're going to grow when you, you struggle and fail and then you succeed. And then after three or four or five books, you go, wow, I guess that's what writing is, struggling and then succeeding. And that's, that's the deal. That's what it is to write. And uh, the better you, paradoxically, the harder it is because your standards are higher. Nah. I remember when I was a screenwriter, my agent said, well, you've been doing it long enough. Isn't it getting easier? And I said, no. I ask more of myself now. I think it's getting harder. So, yeah, I, I, you know, I'm learning so much. I'm learning so much today. Yeah. Because all the, all the things you described are how I feel, but I never really had an answer for it. Because it doesn't get easier. Well, I'm here to here to provide answers, Matt. Uh, <laughs> I appreciate it. Yeah, you send me a bill? No, no, no. I'm willing. This is a freebie. The first one's oh, free. Right. I'm sort of like a drug dealer. First one's <laughs> free. <laughs> so, so you mentioned COVID, and I don't really know how um, your practice worked with lockdowns and such, but um, re maybe you were doing some things remotely. I don't know. But did you feel that – you were seeing more uh, creative patients, less the same, or you weren't able to see ones? Well, no, I did. I, I worked from home for over a year. I'm in my office now, but it's only been yeah. a couple months. Mostly did it through Zoom, FaceTime, and on the phone. So I kept my practice pretty much the way it was, but I got a lot of other people wanting to come in. I have a waiting list now. Hmm. Um, 
was interesting because for years and years in my practice, I had writers saying, boy, if I only had some time where nobody was bothering me and I didn't have to leave the house, I'd, I'd write that great American novel or that great screenplay spec. And yet during COVID, a lot of writers were paralyzed and for whatever reason could not work. Other writers took advantage of it, you know, and got a lot of writing done, but there were some for whom the the experience of their anxiety and fear, hmm. or maybe it was just being under the same roof with their spouse. I don't know hmm. what it is, but uh, the reality was it became... I, thought I was slightly more productive, not substantially more, but my life didn't really change that much, although I did feel it, even though, you know, I work from home and I don't have much of a social life, so it didn't change that much, but... Honestly, I did feel some of the anxiety, but um, I, I was slightly more productive. Uh, but you you were actually, I read or I, I heard an interview you did, I think, where for you, in terms of writing, it was a little bit of a bonus that the, you had a little more free time or to write um, Panic Attack. Is that right? Yeah, because with my full practice, um, my books take about two, two and a half years to come out unlike some of my mystery writing colleagues who, who can knock out one every year or less. But I have a full practice, and so, um, and I work every day from 8 a.m. till 6 p.m. And so, you know, when I go home, it's kind of like Miller time. Can I just watch yeah. the NFL? <laughs> right. So I, I, it's, it takes me longer. But because I was working from home, I didn't have to drive the freeway. I didn't have to get all dressed up. I was in my sweats and a T-shirt. And and so I had a lot more writing time, I found. I wrote Panic Attack during the pandemic, essentially. Mm-hmm. Speaking and, uh, of... I'm, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, I, I, I think I'm, I'm, most people think it's the best book in the series. I don't know if it's the best book in the series, but it's certainly one of my favorites. And I like the kind of energy the book has that is indicative, I think, of me being in a lockdown. You know, mm. so it was writing some of those more claustrophobic themes in the book. Right, right. There's definitely some claustrophobia. You mentioned uh, something that just piqued my interest. It's something that I used to deal with when I was had a day job and had a bit of a commute. Do you put your commute to creative time, or are you just kind of like trying to get away from your day and just kind of numbing out, or are you thinking about when, when you're writing a book, do you think about the book? Yeah, I, I use the commute. I mean, I don't plan much. I'm pretty much a pantser, but mm-hmm. even so, once I'm in the, the weeds on a book, I'm always dealing with problems that I've set up for myself. You know, like I said, at the end of the first chapter of Panic Attack, they pull the mask off the mascot, and it's not the kid they think it is or supposed to be but i had no idea who the kid was then and what ah. he was doing it. you know so i was just as stuck as the reader and i hadn't figured out yet who he was and what he was doing there and how he got in the costume instead of the other guy and so right. that presents me a lot to think about to chew over in my commutes dennis we have a lot in common when it comes to the writing process um yeah, like it it sounds like it. So um, here's a weird question for you. Which do you think prepared you best for writing crime fiction, your years as a scriptwriter in a writer's room or your years as a therapist? I would say it's both. I don't think I could parse it out. 
my understanding of psychological states, um, the compassion I have for the foibles of the human condition, they're all a function of my work as a therapist. I was also very, very lucky in that I worked for five years in a supervision group with Robert Stollero, the nation's number one expert on trauma. And so I learned so much about trauma that I didn't know. What I got from Hollywood in writing film and TV is I learned to write quickly when I did write to get to the point. Uh, I think my dialogue is pretty good because I mostly wrote dialogue for 17 years. So, and and I, I'm because of that also I'm not so precious about my writing. Yeah, I'm very. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, I just go all right. Let's try. Let's try this. All right, that doesn't work. Let me try that. You know. I'd rather write than think, so I don't like to plan too much. Uh And uh, to be honest, I think because as a screenwriter, I always had to provide the studio with a very detailed outline, write the screenplay, and then deal with draft after draft of people's notes. By the time I got to writing my novels, I didn't want to deal with any of that. I just wanted to sit down, write the first thing that came to my mind, and go. And... uh, I like writing myself into little cul-de-sacs because it's fun trying to get myself out of it. Complete, agree completely. And it's, uh, um, I always thought, uh, I, uh, you know, like you, I, I have a lot of friends, um, you being one of them, who, who've written for TV in the mystery business. There's a lot of them out there. And I always thought you guys would be plotters because of just how you described having to write a, a screenplay. But I, the first guy who told me that he wasn't was Craig Foster's buck. I'm sure you know Craig, and he was like the same way. I did all that crap before. I just want to let the you know, let my juices go. Yeah, I mean, you go into a studio and say, "Hello, give me an exorbitant amount of money. It's going to be about a guy, and there's a building, and there's kind of robbery. I'll work it out. Uh, they'll throw you out of the room." But when I'm writing my novels, it's let me there's a guy, there's a building, I guess there's a bank. I'll work it out. And there's no one to tell me to get out of Dodge and, you know, right. never darken the house again. And the freedom to not have to know everything before I wrote it and not have to please 15 people. You know, I would be in a room when I was a screenwriter after I left TV. I would be in a room with the producer, the director, the star, the studio executive, and me. And out mm. of the five people, I was the only one who didn't have script approval. <laughs> That's great. I thought, exactly. wait a minute, what's this picture? I was the only one whose opinion about the script didn't matter. Yeah. And that's maddening. Let me tell you, that, that is really maddening. You still have an editor now. So many, but yeah, my screenwriter patients are all writing for TV now because if you become a showrunner, you're the boss. If yeah. you're a screenwriter, the boss. And the star is the boss. Right. Especially nowadays, it seems like. Oh, yeah. Uh, especially. So we mentioned, uh, we mentioned uh, we didn't really mention his name, but um, Conan Doyle. Um, who are some of your other um, early influences? My early influences, this is going to sound so boring. I loved Raymond Chandler. Oh, yeah. Um, I love that. But I loved Raymond Chandler. James N. Kane, very, very much. Um, and then I, when I became, became older, I loved Jim Thompson. And uh, 
my one of the, the one of the masterpieces to me uh, of mystery writing, uh, of crime writing rather, is the Friends of Eddie Coyle by George V. Higgins. That mm-hmm. like took the top of off. But it was around that time I was also reading Elmore Leonard, uh, Dennis mm-hmm. Lee Hain, uh, Richard Price, an amazing, amazing writer. Um, and and you know I I. I to be honest with you, I, I've read every Michael Connolly book. I've read every one of your Rick Cahill books. Yeah. Um, I, I very much enjoy contemporary mysteries, if they're done well. Gillian Flynn, a lot. I like Tara French. I think she's really talented, too. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, there's so many good people working, who I haven't read yet, but I've heard a lot of, is Megan Abbott. I want to I wanna kind of get into her if I can. Great writer. Um, and uh, Sean Cosby's book, uh, uh, Blacktop Wasteland. Oh, Jesus. So yeah. um, there's a lot of really, really good crime writing being done out there. Yeah, there really is. And it's uh, sometimes you're reading people that are reading assignments that I know you had this year and I'm in the middle of as well. Sometimes you don't necessarily, sometimes you can come across a lot of good, really good work, but sometimes you can't read for pleasure because you're doing other kinds of reading. And it, there are some people out there that I haven't even gotten to yet that I just can't wait to. Um, but I, but Megan Abbott will blow your mind because when I, and when I read Megan Al, A, Abbott, after I'm done, I always feel like when it comes to my writing, I feel like the, the guy in the Western who can't spell his, can't say his, write his name. So he just puts an X that's what I feel like I'm doing after I read Megan Megan Abbott on paper. I'm just writing X's. She's yeah, I, I feel that when I read Mystic River, I felt that way. Dennis Lee's uh, book, yeah, uh, uh, book. And, and also, um, like I said, George B. Higgins, uh, The Friends of Eddie Coyle. I thought to myself, do I have any business thinking I can write crime? You know, so, <laughs> exactly. And it's okay. I mean, I, you know, there, there's uh, – my feeling, you know, oh, there was a, a wonderful metaphor someone used one time that you have to think of writing as a giant lake, and there are big rivers feeding the lake, like Tolstoy and Shakespeare and Hemingway, and then there's little tiny tributaries feeding the lake, guys like me. Yeah, and me too. <laughs> you go, you know, that doesn't matter, only the lake matters. Yeah. And once I saw that metaphor, I calmed down about how good I was or where I ranked or any of that stuff. I just thought to myself, I do my best. I keep giving them me until me is what they want. And I'll let karma decide how it turns out. I like that. I just want a bigger piece of the shoreline. I'm like uh, none of my business. You know what I mean? What I think of my writing in a way is kind of none of my business, if you know what I mean. My job is just and send it out there and let everybody else decide. But you finally do have uh, script approval. All right, so yes, last script approval. What, what is uh, next? I know that you, hopefully you won't have the extra time because of another um, lockdown-ish type situation. So what's next for you in terms of uh, another Rinaldi book, something else, or you haven't you don't have time yet? Well, I don't know. It's funny. Rinaldi's hard to reach. I've left a couple messages for him <laughs> to ask. You know what's on in your life, and he doesn't return my phone calls. So. I don't exactly know what's up with Daniel, but something will be up. Uh, it'll occur to me in the, in the most unlikely way or for the most unlikely reason. And I'll go, oh, I guess I'm going to write about this. Um, Boy, I, I sort know, of follow I know that, my nose. I know that feeling too. <laughs> so yeah. much. 
Well, you got a good character to go from. That's the key, I think. But I appreciate yeah, you very... coming on. Go ahead. Sorry. I'm sorry. I, I said I'm, I'm pleased with the character. And uh, readers seem to like him a lot. And I really – I also think the fact that it's in first person, the reader gets a look behind the curtain on what it's like to be a therapist, including all the wrong turns and mistakes and foolish assumptions you make, you know – in, in TV and movies, the therapists are often presented either as horrible predators or know-it-alls. Right. Right. The reality is we're not. I mean, nobody goes into this profession because they're that mentally healthy to begin with. So, you know, like writers, we are working stuff out. Absolutely. You get to do it twice, two ways. Um, well, right. I appreciate Appreciate you taking the time, and the book is Panic Attack, and it's out everywhere. You can find it, and uh, good read. Enjoy it, people. And, Dennis, hope to see you uh, out, in the, out in the real world again sometime soon. That'd be nice. I, I do look forward to it. Thanks for having me on, Matt. Thank you, man. Take care. All right, folks. Um, just a little quick nod. If you're a book club and or a member of a book club and like to talk to a real-life author, I am one, and you can contact me via my website, mattcoilbooks.com, or via Novel Network. would love to talk to your group, either live or Zoom. Um, I'll drive away as even to talk to you in person if you provide chocolate or something. Um, so check back on December 10th. I'll have uh, Wendell Thomas as a guest. I think that's my next one. And hope to see or listen to you or talk at you then, rather. This is a copyrighted trademark podcast owned solely by the authors on the Air Global Radio Network.